Values explain why we do things and they guide us towards the things that we do. It's unsatisfying if you are concerned about a just world and you have to admit to yourself that contingency reigns. Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I'm Troy. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Just so casual. Just one name. Okay, <laughs> we've decided on it now. It's been, it's been three weeks now. I feel like that's the thing. I actually was in the shower the other day and I was thinking about this and I was like, should I just go back to Austin? You actually you put me into a little bit of like a comp. I had a, I developed a complex now, so this is fully passive aggressive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ooh, great, yeah. It's totally about huh? it's totally about me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, sick. Well, so this week we're actually going to be talking about an interview in The Nation with political theorist Wendy Brown. And it's uh, kind of framed around her new book that's called Nihilistic Times, Thinking with Max Weber. And it actually, I don't know if you knew this, Troy, but it did cause a bit of a shitstorm online. There were a lot of people that were like, wow, surprising that Wendy Brown is choosing Max Weber as somebody to think about um, with regards to the contemporary political moment. They were kind of saying they felt it was a strange choice. And I feel like I was just telling this to Sean when we were getting ready for this. I was like, I feel like Wendy Brown is great because she always pisses off like the right group of people, you know, (laughs) like on, on every side, which to me is at least interesting. Right, which doesn't mean that like everything she says is gospel or anything like that. But at least there's something interesting when when people on the left and the right are all getting mad at you all at the same time. It makes me go, huh? Okay, well, why is that? So maybe there's something interesting in this. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I do worry sometimes when there's this like this logic of pissing off the right people that I'm doing well because sometimes sometimes the person just sucks <laughs> and like everyone can see it, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, but yeah. I think in in this case, yeah, I think you're right that it's um, pissing off all the right people, and even the, even the interview itself, she gets a little bit cantankerous with. The, yeah, <laughs> she's a little prickly. Yeah, which I like. Yeah. It, these these kinds of interviews usually that kind of stuff is edited out, or people try to present a certain yeah. kind of image. And I I appreciate that the nation also is just like you know we're keeping that we're keeping that shit in like it's an important part of. Um, Brown's argument that, you know, to be somewhat, you know, uh, reasonably dismissive, but dismissive of certain kinds Mm. of uh, common critiques. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there's something even kind of more substantially interesting about being prickly with an interlocutor like that, that it's okay to kind of sometimes be like, well, wait a second, what you just said is this, and I don't really think that that's a fair characterization, or uh, actually I think that what you're saying takes us in a really bad direction, rather than just like a sort of veneer of niceness all the time. And um, I, I, yeah, I kind of appreciated that formally, like rhetorically. I think there's something interesting in that. So I was going to actually bring that up. So I don't no, know if it's something we can talk about. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot to say about that. I mean, I think I mean, we can get into more when we talk about the actual essay but um, or interview. But there's something about, you know, people always pick, like create this um, dichotomy or binary between like uh, logical, rational argument and rhetoric. And of course, there's there's not actually a binary between them. They, you know, hopefully in the ideal sense are mutually reinforcing. And part of the rhetorical use of being dismissive or cantankerous can be, look, the burden of proof isn't on me or the burden of argument isn't on me in this context, right? And being somewhat dismissive um, about that is a way of showing that, right? So as long as the rhetoric is driven 
by an integrated with rational argument that's very much um, necessary, in fact, right? If you're not going to be that way, then sometimes you end up giving credence to things that don't deserve any credence whatsoever. And that's actually a really bad form of argument, right? Hmm. Mm. Yeah, which kind of fits into probably her point about um, living in a nihilistic age where politics maybe gets reduced to that sometimes, that tendency. So maybe there's it kind of fits even into her whole her whole ethos that she's trying to uh, to share with us. So, but we'll um, post a link down in the show notes to the interview. It's called Wendy Brown: A Conversation About or A Conversation on Our Nihilistic Age. Um, but before we get into that, what uh, we got some housekeeping stuff, right, Troy? Yeah, we do want to mention that if you want to support us, you can do so at Patreon.com/slash Owls at Dawn. We recently just put up there um, asking the patrons for episode topics for our next patron-sponsored episode. We've got a bunch of really interesting topics suggested already by the patrons. But if you are a patron and you're listening, make sure you go to the Patreon so you can um, submit your nomination for the next patron-sponsored episode. And if you're not a patron, think about joining up so you can get access to um, abilities like that to suggest topics for our next patron-sponsored episode. So again, that's patreon.com slash dawn. I don't know, Austin, you have something you wanted to talk about, too, before we get into the meat of the episode, right? Something special you got going on? Yeah, so for people who are interested, I teach um, sometimes classes at the Melbourne School of Continental Philosophy in Australia, but they're online. Uh, Sometimes they do in-person classes as well, but I've done one in-person and a couple online courses, and I'm doing another online course starting in Feb, so it's the 12th through the 16th of Feb. It's a week of courses. It's a two-hour, like two-hour seminar slash lectures, whatever you want to call them, and um, you can sign up for them. They're really affordable. I don't know if any of you have uh, heard of the Melbourne School of Continental Philosophy, but it's this really great, I mean, I don't even know, what do you call it? Is it like a para, a para-educational, inst- it's not para-educational, it's an educational institute, but it's like a, it's, like, it's not because it's not tertiary. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah, and it's great. They they are constantly running courses on. Um, they actually have a, a, a Melbourne School of Political Economy as well. So they do courses on like philosophy, political philosophy, literature. Um, really great scholars who teach through the organization. So, but um, courses are really affordable. So for one course, if you sign up, it's one hundred forty five bucks for waged, and then they have an unwaged price that's ninety bucks for just one course. And then if you do multiple courses, you get um, sort of discounts on the bulk amount of courses that you offer. So um, if you just wanted to do my course, it's 145 bucks, or it's 90 for the unwaged option. Two courses is like $220 or 150 for unwaged, and then so on and so forth. Um, but anyway, the course that I'm teaching is called A Critique of Keynesian Rationality from Philosophy to Ethics to Macroeconomic Management. And essentially what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at um, Keynes from a philosophical perspective and that to understand Keynes you have to understand how his philosophy of time is inseparable from his ethical philosophy which then ultimately grounds his ethical theory in the pursuit of the construction of the good society through the management of the future and I think that's key for me is because actually what ends up happening with Keynesian rationality is you get this mandate to manage the future through technocratic elites who are given the privilege through their kind of um, wonkness to control the tools of managing the future in the construction of the putative good society, right? Um, Which comes with all kinds of loaded things. So we're going to look at 
kind of the philosophical foundations and then even into some of the economic literature to see how it is that we can justify this claim that I'm making. Um, and so it's five days for two hours every day. And so if you can um, make it, you can do it live, but then you can also just sign up for the class and you can listen to the archive and join afterwards so that you're not actually live in the in the kind of conversations themselves. Um, but like I said, it's Feb 12th through 16th. It's taught online via Zoom. There will be some readings, but it'll be really light. Um, and the bulk of the readings are actually going to be from like a chapter of my forthcoming book, as well as like some snippets from Keynes and maybe some of the philosophers like G.E. Moore and stuff like that that he uh, you know studied under. But really light reading, and it's more about like the discussion and the the, the quote unquote lecture. But it's really just going to be me talking through ideas through a PowerPoint and then opening things up for discussion and, and having more of like a seminar style. And then um, yeah, it's three o'clock to five o'clock uh, in Melbourne time which I, I think that's like like uh, late evening if you're in the U.S., super early morning if you're in the continent, um, and I'm not sure where it would be elsewhere. So, But um, yeah, like I said, if you can't make it live either, you can just access the audio uh, archive afterwards and, and have a listen. But yeah, sign up for my course. Come learn about the kind of subtle and evil underpinnings of Keynesian rationality. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the seductive, insidious underbelly. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that's what we're going to talk about. So uh, Melbourne School of Continental Philosophy, I'll put a link down below in the show notes as well so you can just click it that way as well or you can just give the old Google machine a try. So that's what I got, man. Sounds awesome, dude. I'm looking forward to hearing more, more about how that goes. Yeah, 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 it's a really cool format. I love the school. They teach all kinds of stuff. It's it's the Melbourne School of Continental Philosophy. So they really is one of the few like you know professional level institutions that really focuses on teaching continental philosophy at a, at a really high level. So stuff on anything from like Heidegger to Deleuze to Arendt to Kristeva and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is really great. And then they do stuff on like Bedou and and stuff that you just aren't gonna learn unless you're like a grad student, you know. And um, it's it's a pretty cool pretty cool forum for for that. So I dig I dig being a part of what they've got going on. So um, well, sick. Well, let's go ahead and get this show rocking. It's time for the shitty minute, which is how we start off every single episode. It's a time where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that's pissing us off. So Troy, it is your turn to vent. So what you got? So a quick little quiz for you, Austin. There was a, a documentary film series that was very popular and influential in our evangelical, conservative evangelical Christian upbringing um, that I think we probably both really loved and appreciated for documenting the history of Western civilization and its downfall as it became more and more unmoored, especially in the Enlightenment, from uh, a grounding in Christian theology and values. Francis you know Schaeffer? <laughs> yeah, Francis Schaeffer's How Should We Then Live? How Should We Live? Yeah, How Should We Then and Live? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing at all brought this to mind for me this week, except that for some <laughs> reason it popped into my head that that is one of the great titles for anything. And it's it really mm. pisses me off that that series got to use <laughs> the title How Should We Then Live? And then nobody else yeah. gets to use it because that would be a great philosophical book title. It sounds like the kind of thing that would be 
you know, a stoic or epicurean tome um, mm. like, uh, that, that, that you would sort of base your life on, right? And it's got this like list of aphorisms about the way you should live your life and people sort of build a sort of philosophical religion um, and movement around it. But like the bizarro version of that happened where like so many, for people who don't know, this series by Francis Schaeffer, Francis Schaeffer was an uh, evangelical, um, I don't know what his job title would have even been, sort of writer or commentator of sorts in the mid 20th century. And he did this film series and book called How Should We Then Live, which sort of starts in the um, Greco-Roman period, I think, right? And then traces, attempts to trace the entirety of what it calls Western civilization, um, and the, the downfall of that civilization as it becomes unmoored from Christian theology and values uh, and like analyzes art and theology and film and all sorts of things to sort of tell this big, big story about the decline of Western civilization. And I don't think we knew at the time, but when you look back on it now, that series actually is one of the main, I think, causes of some of the um, you know, rightist discourse that we that we hear today in mm-hmm. uh, even like social media sphere, right? About Western civilization as being this kind of thing that's under threat by lefty types and um, and whatnot. So a lot of that I think comes from people who were influenced or somehow caught on to to uh, Schaefer's deal. And there's also an important um, through line between uh, Schaefer's position and sort of the abortion rights movement um, or sort of the mm. um, uh, fetus rights movements and the um, pro-life movement in the U.S. A lot of that stems from him as well, and I think there's there was there's been some work done tracing like the fact that abortion seemed to be mostly a, a Catholic issue um, up until uh, Schaefer really helped make it a, a Protestant issue, and now it's even viewed today as being almost exclusively like an evangelical issue more than anything else. Schaefer seems to be largely responsible for that. So anyway, I don't want to give, you know, talk too much about this, but I just wanted to sort of reminisce with you a little bit about that and then yeah. see whether or not you agree that that title does, it's kind of a cosmic tragedy that that title doesn't get to get used by a much greater and more important work. Don't you think? Well, maybe we could, why could we not repackage it? Like I, I would just Google it because I do remember that Chuck Colson actually did his take on it, which is how now shall we live? And uh, I feel like there's a way to, to repackage it somehow, rebrand it, right? There's, there's got to be some someone who's a wordsmith could do something good or just fucking do it and just, just how shall we then live? How should we then live? Just try and take it. How, how <laughs> will we? How will we then live? Ooh, see, you know? Yeah, but the, the should yeah. has that moral imperative sense to it. And the placement of the uh-huh. then, instead of saying how then should we live, how should we then live? I don't know, it has this sense of like something catastrophic has happened or some, you know, important yeah, yeah. realization has occurred. And now we have to reflect on how life should change going forward. That has such a momentous sort of feel to it. It seems so important, right? Yeah, it was for us at the time and for a lot of people. Here, Here's what I wonder. Um, do you think, so a lot of, remember when like Jordan Peterson first like came on the scene and caused a big splash. And I remember you and I talked a lot about how, well, basically we weren't that surprised by anything he was saying. And we felt, I, at least I felt really sort of like immune from everything he was saying. And like, I already had ready packaged answer because I feel like I'd gone through it with 
the truth war debates of the 2000s when the postmodern or when the emerging church was being you know lambasted by the kind of conservative evangelical establishment you know D.A. Carson and then of course uh, John MacArthur amongst others right that were coming down on like who was it like Paget and McLaren and you know even fuck even a church that I was a part of um for a bit um and so like like I, I wonder is there a sense in which it's kind of like is culture down downstream from theology you know or <laughs> like I, I'm wondering are Christians kind of oftentimes ahead of the ahead of the the kind of larger cultural tide and i and i'm thinking now also like like let's go back into like the fundamentalist movement in like the early 20 or late 19th early 20th century you get kind of a lot of concerns that that political theorists attribute to being something that takes place maybe like a decade later or, or a handful of years later but you know like um what's his name jay gresham machen's like critique of liberalism Right, mm-hmm. um, and he's critiquing it in in the context of theology, but basically, essentially, he's kind of doing something similar to, um, you know, kind of like critiquing secularism, um, and and making these critiques that uh, like a lot of people today kind of take up as critiques of um, of kind of like Western progressivism, right? And so, what do you think? Like, is there something in this like order of operations? Do Christians oftentimes? I don't know if they're drivers, but are they kind of like um, like distorted prophets that that their words then kind of take on political and, and broader social clout, like a little bit downstream? Yeah, I mean, it, it could be that I'm a little bit wary of that kind of explanation because it might also just be that there's a cycle because nothing new is under the sun at this point. <laughs> this, this might even speak to, to, yeah. to Brown's point about nihilism, right, where it's just the same sort of uh, cultural war talking points have kind of been passed around and it's really just a new medium, right? Rather than any new content to the discussion. Yeah, like the whole the whole anti-PC shit from the 90s is basically just being repackaged that's, now. That's woke, right? yeah. What's called woke now was called PC stuff in the 90s. It's like almost nothing new. That's it's right. It's just a little bit of, you know, new instantiations of it, but the same, the discourse is basically the same, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I, I think the thing, I, I know you and I used to, the one thing that I love about Schaefer is at least the romantic ideal that I have of Labrie, which is just like this place that's in the fucking Swiss mountains that mm. like a group of <laughs> like-minded people can just come. Like I want like, I, we're, I'm still one day we're going to build our Labrie, you know, like that's my retirement plan. So, <laughs> And you make it purposefully impossible to get to it. So it's like the actual... <laughs> Uh, travel and like getting to the thing itself is part of the spiritual, you know, endeavor. I, I actually, I do kind of love that. So, yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, here's no, my it, question. It was very seductive for a reason, right? The the whole presentation yeah. of the thing, I think, was was a, as big a part of um, its seduction and success as the actual content of the arguments, which which were not very good when you actually look at them mm. um, very closely. I know you and I aren't really like as tapped into the kind of Protestant evangelical world as much as we were, but I am surprised that I never, ever, ever, ever hear Schaefer's name pop up as being somebody that was influential and important in American culture. Like even from, let's say, like quote unquote secular critics, they don't like draw attention to the fact that he had an impact and that he's somebody that's worth reckoning with or anything like that. Do you or do you have maybe an answer why he's not? No, I'm curious about that too. I mean, it seems like when you dig a little bit deeper, 
he had a huge influence on huge. Um, sort of the 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 bubble of, of the Christian evangelicalism. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. a very outsized influence compared to what you would think otherwise. And I think, you know, his his own son, uh, Frank Schaefer, who has sort of um, rejected his father's legacy oh, and has been a, yeah. um, a critic. He was of, one of the emerging of, church guys, wasn't he? I'm not sure. I don't remember that. I know he, he kind of had a, like a longer um, sort of journey out of the conservative evangelical movement into wherever he is now. I don't know. I haven't looked him up in a long time. Um, but I, he's even said that, you know, part of his mission is to sort of undo the influence that his father had. Um, and it's hard to wow. know, like, he, he seems very genuine. When I remember watching interviews with him, I don't know, two decades ago or whatever, but he seemed very yeah, genuine. Yeah. It, was, it was very erudite and didn't seem like he was sort of a, trying to grift off his father's um, stuff by just rejecting a wholesale um, to make a buck or anything. But yeah, it's one of those weird things where like I can imagine in, in 20 or 30 years, no one will know this name, right? But it will still, yeah. it'll still have been a huge influence on the trajectory of American culture. Wow. Yeah, I'm the only thing I just Googled him. Apparently he's making like films and he's still kind of speaking and he's still out there and He's gone from being a conservative Republican to being a liberal Democrat and an atheist. So interesting. Yeah. I think I do remember, I don't know if he was actually a part of like, kind of like a trying to transform the church at any point, but for some reason I feel like he was somebody that a lot of people talked about. Um, yeah. I don't know. Uh, as somebody like moving away from, you know, Christian fundamentalism. As kind of he put it, which is funny because I never thought of his dad as being a fundamentalist because I remember being in the evangelical circles and they would critique Schaefer for being too quote unquote liberal, right? That, that tells for you like, how conservative the circles that we were in were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they're like, oh, because like the dabbling in philosophy and human thought and human wisdom and stuff like that was viewed as yeah. like somehow a, a degradation from just simply, you know, expounding the truths of the gospel from the pulpit. We thought we were renegades for for liking Schaefer, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Apparently, oh, I'm just so looking funny. up Frank Schaefer, uh, his son, right now. He's done some films that depict life in a fundamentalist Christian household. I'd be, I mean, if they're not terrible, I'd be curious to to see some of those and seeing how yeah. how much they compare to stuff that we experienced. Yeah. 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 Super interesting. Um, well, once yeah, we have our well, own, once we have our own um, para academic school, we can devote a semester to reading how should we then live and tracing its influence on contemporary conservative thought in America. That'd be kind of a fun project. Laser that all the time in the world. <laughs> That's it, laser baby. One of these That's days, right. it's coming. <laughs> the Los Angeles School for ready. Social Research. That's right. <laughs> That's it. Uh, all right, sick. Well, let's get into the main segment, man. Um, so you recommended this because you had been wanting to read this interview or had you read this interview and you thought it would just be good fodder for us to chat about? Yeah, it was just one of the things that I had saved on my uh, Read Later um, app because I wanted to look into it. I actually hadn't heard the stuff you had heard about some hubbub around it and criticism. I had just... Yeah seen the interview with the nation and wanted to check it out. I mean, it sounded like it was something I would be interested in reading. So, um, 
I guess it, it, the book came out a while ago. Is that the case? No, no, no. This is this is a new book. I know, but I mean, like, it didn't come out like in the last month or something, did it? Oh no, no, no. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah, in the spring of last year. So yeah, it's been out for a good eight or nine months. Mm-hmm. I didn't even hear about it um, until someone online had posted this interview. I don't know. I think it was the interview, at least in my world, that caused the little bit of the shitstorm that got kicked up, notably from Marxists. And I think it's it makes a lot of sense too because in in, in the interview, I actually did I did appreciate that the interviewer brought up I think um, some of the reasons, and it's that like. Oh, so you don't really appeal to Marx in this. Lately in your work, you've been appealing to Foucault and Weber. And so it's kind of, you know, all of the, all of the, the, the really kind of like self-avowed Marxists were like, yeah, this is one of the problems. And I've heard this for a long time in, especially in political economy circles or in like, um, like Marxist philosophy circles where they find her arguments to be sorely lacking because of her, like lack of a direct appeal to Marxian political philosophy or Marxian social theory and and like, you know, the Frankfurt School type of critical theory approach and instead looking to Foucault and then now Weber. So it makes a lot of sense. I just think it's worth kind of suspending some of that like knee-jerk judgment stuff just because she's not, you know, you know, appealing to the same resources that you want her to in and this is part of one of the things that she talks about, like what's value, what's valuable about excavating resources for the sake of excavating those resources, apart from a necessary political program that informs your academic pursuit. Yeah, I mean, I think part of, I mean, I haven't read a ton of Wendy Brown, but it seems like um, she's she's not quite, she's obviously not like a Marxist-Leninist or anything like that, um, but also uh, does, is not, you know strictly aligned with like social democracy or democratic socialism. So it, it can be a hard, if you're looking for putting someone in boxes to try to understand what they're thinking, um, which is, you know, not the best thing to do anyway, it can be difficult to do that. So I can see people being frustrated in that way, especially if they're um, not finding the sort of the spirit of um, the argument or the discussion or the uh, pursuit that she's engaging in to be independently worthwhile. Mm. I think I think I wonder if part of it is that um, I wonder, and this is what's interesting. I almost wonder if in this interview, there's a little bit of a defense that she's mounting for herself and her work, and it's against the critiques from the Marxists who do not make a separation between their political convictions and their academic pursuits, right? And for her, I think she's. Obviously, she's not naive enough to be like, well, no, your thoughts about politics aren't going to have any sort of informing impact on your academic pursuits. But what she wants to do Mm -hmm. is she talks about the moat. She wants to retain this moat between kind of political values and academic integrity and pursuits and the intellectual pursuit itself. And, And I was thinking about it as she was describing it as like academia or the intellectual pursuits are the place where you go to unfamiliarize yourself that's where you go to deterritorialize your thoughts your presuppositions how you view the world your convictions and then in the world of politics that's where we can kind of like that's where power comes into play that's where values come into play and we need to have some sort of mm-hmm. separation between those two spheres whereas marxists especially academic marxists they refuse that entirely 
And I think she kind of sees that as like the obverse of the right-wing approach to try to infiltrate academia with its own kind of insidious efforts to transform the system in the name of neoliberal reforms or something like that, right? What did you think about that? Because I, I, yeah, I do think there's something interesting in that. And it, I think it's kind of putting name to some certain things that I've felt as well, because I think one of the things that I find, and here, here's the point, I can already, I can preempt the critique, which is that this is a privileged position to hold. And maybe we can, we can put a button on that because maybe that's true. I kind of have always been attracted to the idea of being able to explore dangerous ideas or to um, entertain ideas that might be against the status quo or against the consensus or that might be that might have been deemed by the consensus to be outside the bounds of right or wrong or valuable or important or whatever. Part of the reason that I have found academia so amazing is because it introduced me to those ideas rather than reinforcing just a simple dogma. And maybe because of the environment out of which I come, I just find myself increasingly more and more allergic to dogma and I smell it like I'm very sensitive to it. And 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 even if it's in the name of a cause that I might even be aligned with, I still am kind of turned off by it. And academia for me, the best parts of academia for me, even in our kind of evangelical environments, right? Like with our philosophy professor at our university or with our English professor at that same university and I had a theology professor at that same university who they knew that they were opening up Pandora's box a bit, but they allowed us to explore those dangerous ideas. And I think that's maybe what kind of intoxicates me about certain aspects of intellectual freedom in the intellectual pursuits. Oh, it's exactly what was so exciting about that in the first place. And what was, what was seductive and drew us to it was that we lived in an environment that was completely closed off from independent inquiry. Yeah. yeah. You weren't allowed to think in certain ways. I mean, we, um, for those who don't know, there's this, there's this sort of sub-discipline in Christian theology called apologetics, which... Uh, we were both interested in our early college years, and it basically the idea is to um, develop uh, philosophical or quasi-philosophical defenses of Christian theology and doctrine, um, especially around like the existence of God and whether or not Jesus resurrected and stuff like that. Those are some of the um, the main sort of topics that would be um, rationally defended, and that entire discipline. You would think sort of its its sort of stated purpose, at least implicitly, is to convert people who are um, sort of, you know, rationally oriented or whatever um, mm-hmm. into thinking, hey, there's something reasonable about Christian theology or doctrine. But of course, in practice, it is all and only already converted Christians who were consumers of that stuff, right? You go to an apologetics conference or something, it's entirely believers. And it's like, well, what is the point of mounting a defense for people who already are part of the choir, Right. And of course, that sort of gave up the game, right? Which is that actually the function of this thing is to rationalize and reassure people who are having doubts about certain things, giving mm. them sort of reasons to believe a thing without really ever countenancing the other side, right? As if, you know, do, you could have a do simple you binary think, anyway. Because I always felt like, you know, remember like Greg Kokel's Stand a Reason is one that I used to mm. you know, listen to a lot. and All the time, um, yeah. All the fucking time, right? And... And I used to take that when I would go out and I would like street preach on Friday nights at, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Oh, God, I forgot. In, in Santa Monica, Third Street Promenade. Third Street Promenade. 
That was the first time I ever ever met you, dude. Was it at Third Street? Fucking hell. Yeah. yeah. And at Third Street Promenade. And so there were a subset of people, at least, that were putting it into practice quite proactively, right? And there are all kinds of reasons why someone like myself who would be drawn to that approach, right? As, you know, someone, maybe it's like that young adventurism kind of thing. It, there's, I'm sure there's a, a, a handful of narcissism that's tied into this as well, right? But, but there was also something that was really genuinely true about wanting to meet people and reach them and listen to them. And even though, like some people, some of the people that were there actually, even at Third Street, were much more bombastic and they would like not listen. And for them, it was they had the tools so that they could smack you down and win. Whereas, mm-hmm. thankfully, because of our mentor, I think we were actually both really, we developed, I think, much more of a care and a concern for people, for humans, right? And That's so there was much more... In the first place, yeah. Exactly. And so there was much more, I think, of an openness and a willingness to listen to who they were and where they were. And even though we had the tools that we had developed in our apologetics training and our philosophical training, it was also about like allowing them to inform our thoughts and say yeah that's actually a really good fucking question or i don't know and like what do we think about this i have these convictions and they might run into limits at the end of the day i don't think that i'll abandon them but still you allow the other person to have some space so so there is a sense in which i think the apologetics training was for the intention at least for a lot of people to reach other people but then here's where i wonder if this reinforces your point that you just made a minute ago but at the end of the day it was so that you could walk away as the believer knowing that you had an answer and then feeling unwavering in your ability to give any answer or to have an answer to any sort of critique or question yeah and i think for for you and me um we went into that and sort of our journey led us into that subdiscipline because we cared about truth, right? We cared about knowledge and understanding. We wanted to know something. We weren't satisfied with just believe it based upon um, reasons of authority or something like that, right? Um, and we also, I don't think, neither of us had the most sort of um, straightforward through line in our families of like, this is something you have to believe because it's a family thing. I know um, no. uh, your dad, your dad's a believer. My, my mom was at the time and, um, and was very much involved in the, in the church, but it wasn't the kind of thing where it's like, we have other sort of foundations. No, like we wanted to know for real if this stuff was yeah. true. We cared about that. I wasn't able to live comfortably um, with doubts. And so I wanted to explore them. And when you come across a stultifying intellectual dead end, where you're not allowed to ask certain questions, it's extremely alienating and frustrating. And it only makes you want mm. to continue more when you come across those boundaries, right? Rather than giving up mm. and just accepting your lot. So when you see that sort of same function and phenomenon happening in uh, lefty and, and you know Marxist and Marxist-associated circles, it, it does sometimes look kind of the same, not in content, but in terms of um, looking for a kind of apologetics rather than seeking truth for its own sake or something like that. Yeah, and one of the things I think that really turned me off, and I think we've talked about this before, but one of the things that I really started to latch on to, so much so that even when I was doing my master's degree, I was considering entertaining a project for my dissertation on doing like a phenomenology of fear, because it felt like fear was the driving emotion that wouldn't allow individuals within the uh, Christian community, I was going to say the academic community, but yeah, um, but they wouldn't allow, that wouldn't allow individuals within the Christian community to kind of 
you know, breach their own walls. And maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe I just am kind of, I don't know. I, I sense a certain fear within a certain, let's say, a, a certain left consensus that there's a fear that if they allow any sort, it's like a slippery slope argument, if they allow any sort of encroachment of, of the stronghold, then the entire wall is going to crumble down. And, and if that's the case, then maybe the stronghold isn't that strong. Yeah, I mean, this, this kind of gets to some of the things that, that Brown talks about in the interview that, that I'm curious to, to talk about um, and to see what you think about. Because, you know, Brown's point when she's talking about this moat between academic and political life is that, you know, the, the interview even says, like, what do you think about the criticism that says that having this split, this moat between academic and political life allows for the status quo to go unchecked? And she kind of snarkily is just like, no, it's not. It's the opposite, actually, yeah. right? Quite the contrary. Yeah. Um, having a the collapse of the academic and the political um, allows for the status quo to be defended because there's nothing there to check it, right? Having academic life be independent in, in an important respect from political life allows the academy to explore things that can end up being used as criticisms of the status quo. In fact, it's really the only way to develop robust um, forms of intellectual thinking that can criticize the status quo. Like nothing, she says something like, nothing is worse for academic life when it's politicized and nothing is worse for political um, uh, progression when um, you have this impoverished kind of critical inquiry, which doesn't check it in any way, right? There has to be the yeah. healthy relationship involves a divide, a certain kind of divide between them. So she doesn't think, she's not sort of uh, promoting some like centrist, moderate, liberal kind of notion where uh, academic life, you know, academics shouldn't be politically subversive and shouldn't be political actors in any way or shouldn't like talk about their politics or their values in class, just, you know, say the facts or whatever, right? She's not saying that at all, right? Quite, you know, very much the contrary of that. She thinks in order for academics to have the appropriate political function in a society, they have to be separate from politics in an important way, to be outside critics in a way that don't have to sort of kowtow to whatever the political moment seems to require. Which is what the kind of idea of academic freedom and the purpose of tenure in a lot of ways is meant to ensure that academics would have that space. I do think it's interesting. I feel like the interviewer kind of gives away the game a bit when they ask that question. It's as though the interviewer thinks that the status quo is some sort of ethereal abstract monster that isn't <laughs> itself already being legitimated by a concerted effort by people and by institutions and by mm -hmm. funding organizations and brown is kind of like wait a second why would doing this like i'm just going to quote what she says why would a commitment to rigorous critical analysis buttress rather than dismantle the status quo why would stepping away from the fracas of the political sphere to reflect on political positions result in affirming the way things are? To the contrary, allowing the academic realm to be intensely politicized is more likely to reproduce what you call the political status quo. And it also sacrifices the potential of academic inquiry to probe and query it. And I think the reason, and she goes on to kind of like elaborate a bit, and I think the reason is because, as she says, you know, the classroom isn't just simply a lectern that you use as a, like a pulpit to preach your ideals. 
And I think what she's recognizing is that what we have is in the encroachment of the political sphere from, let's say, the left or the right, is you have people, you have agents, you have actors who are wielding these ideas that are funded probably by these powerful initiatives, especially, let's say, on the right, not as much on the left. And and in a lot of ways, I think the tendency of the left to use the lectern as a pulpit is a reaction to, like, an effort to, like, try to hold back the encroachment from the right. So I also understand mm-hmm. the impulse. But I think I think the idea is, is that the status quo isn't just some sort of, like, amorphous monster that comes out of nowhere. Like, we know where it comes from. And we know who is driving it. And we can confront those people directly in the political sphere— and also in the in the academic sphere, but without thinking that it is thought and critical thought itself that somehow opens the gaps for them to just come in as though it's like opening up your heart and the devil will sneak in, right? She's like, that's not how it works. Yeah, I mean, if you want to expose the fact that the status quo has been built over many decades from all areas of life, economic to academic to political to otherwise, right, uh, to cultural – that requires a lot of independent academic work to expose that, right? That's part of the mm. job of the academic is to expose the genealogy of things which appear to not have any genealogy. Do you think she's in a way kind of subtly dismissing the idea that everything is political? I mean, in a certain sense, right? I mean, the problem mm. with with catchphrases like that is they're they're both obviously true and obviously not true. And you can interpret them vacuously in a way that's obviously true, or you can make them, you know, so strong that it's impossible, that there's no way that they're true. There's a certain sense, which I think Brown would agree that everything's political in the sense that, like, everything involves, um, like, values and power, which is part of the the content of, of the argument that she's making, right, about about nihilism, which we should probably get back to at a certain point to excavating that notion. <laughs> um, but that's obviously, that, and that, that sense in which everything's political is obviously true right i mean you can't sort of exist outside of politics in life everything you do is going to have some sort of political ramification or the context of the political is important for interpreting it at the very least right but Mm. i I think brown would probably be fine with saying that sort of trivially true but what she's saying is like sure that's the case but the function that academic life is supposed to have in politics is to be an independent outside critic of it that's the sense in which er everything academic is political not the sense of like uh, everything academic has to have this um, push and pull of immediate uh, exercise of power in it. I mean, part of the thing, the issue there is a pedagogical one more than anything, right? Mm. Coming from the the perspective of someone who like teaches in the academy, people who think of their classroom as a place where they can preach at their students or tell their students what to think, that's just bad pedagogy, right? Even I think from like a pretty far left thinking about pedagogy, reading like um, Pelo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, right? One of the lessons I learned from that book that, I, that I've that i incorporated into my own life and teaching is like, think about the classroom as a place for you to learn with your students, right? Mm-hmm. Take texts, take ideas, and help them understand those things, right? But as you're doing that, like incorporate their own thinking into it so that it can become integrated in whatever way it's appropriate, whether it's, you know, wholesale acceptance, wholesale rejection, you know, piecemeal, whatever it is, and then discuss and learn with the students. Like it's a group endeavor and not just a bully pulpit where you tell someone what to mm-hmm. think, right? Uh, and that kind of thinking about pedagogy is pretty diametrically opposed to collapsing the political and the academic, which would just think about the classroom as being sort of a way to download information uh, into someone so they have the right political viewpoints or something like that. 
So, so connecting this now to the larger point of investigation, which is the the moment of nihilism or the situation of nihilism, which we can describe in a second and how she she understands it. Do you think then that maybe this tendency towards bully pulpiting is as a response to the nihilistic times? And so academics who aren't immune from this kind of the zeitgeist, so to speak, that maybe their response is, you know, on the right, it's we need to ensure that the next generation don't fall down the rabbit hole of like anti-liberalism or something along those lines, that they continue to toe the kind of global political economic order, the line of the global political economic order in perpetuity. And then on the left, it's kind of like, a oh shit, there's a power vacuum and it's going to open up spaces for fascism. And so we need to ensure that we're arming the next generation of students. So could both of those tendencies that we're talking about in the academic world, the politicization of the academic, could that also be a response to the nihilistic times? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's part of Brown's argument, right? It does go back to hmm. this sort of historical point about the way that values function in um, both individual and social life, right? Which I thought was, the, for me, the most important point of this interview and I'm imagining of, of her book that I appreciated, although I think some of her conclusions are a bit strange and maybe somewhat misguided. But this idea, she mentions in the interview here, that part of the important point about values, and it's always important when people start talking about values to ask them what they mean, because nobody agrees on what mm-hmm. values are <laughs> in the mm-hmm. philosophical sphere. She mentions that, Part of how values function is as action-guiding reasons. She doesn't use the, that phrase exactly, but that's kind of what she's getting at, right? Values explain why we do things, and they guide us towards the things that we do, right? They tell us certain things are important, and then that sort of encourages us, motivates us, gives us reasons to do certain things. So when you have sort of socially and maybe theologically or philosophically grounded robust values, like things everyone just in social life accepts as being important, basically, right? As appropriately action guiding. And everyone agrees on that. Things are pretty clear. Now, obviously, there's downsides to that, especially when those things are like incorrect or they're um, undemocratic or they involve, you know, some people being more important than others or uh, a kind of social life, which is demoralizing and and is um, authoritarian and whatnot. Um, But the action guiding function actually functions, it works, right? Um, What nihilism is, I think what she's saying is that nihilism is this sort of change where those values are no longer robust. She says something like, she uses a lot of metaphors for like they're weak or they're shallow or they're, um, I can't remember the other words that she uses for them, but the the values are still there because you have to have action guiding reasons for what you do, but they're kind of like easy to just come up in thin air, right? Um, they're not generally agreed upon. That's sort of the liberal point. But then also, they I think her kind of innovative point is that they're also sort of just weak and don't action guide in, in like the clearly robust way they used to and motivate in the way that they used to. And so hmm. when values become lightweight in that sense, right, they don't have the push and pull of conscience that they used to. She says things like, you know, hypocrisy becomes not that big a deal anymore in the public sphere. It's just like, yeah, of course, people are hypocritical. Hmm. Who really cares? Integrity doesn't matter anymore. This is a big point that Bernard Williams talks a lot about that. Um, you see an important change 
um, in, in values, especially in like utilitarian thinking where integrity no longer really matters. Um, means mm. end reasoning is all that matters ultimately, right? Mm. And so um, that difference when values still have to function in a certain way, but they can't do it very well, that's the problem of nihilism. And that's where people get alienated because to live in a life of, uh, in a, a social life of the people and even your own life independently to think about what's important to you and to exercise um, your agency towards doing those things, you have to have action guiding reasons and you have them, but they're kind of weak and frail and don't really do much for you anymore. And that leaves you kind of empty and alienated. And that seems to be, um, she says, I think basically all the things that are, um, there's very various symptoms of those things that are out there. Um, like depression and NUE and whatnot. And they're all just kind of symptoms of this general phenomenon of nihilism. Yeah, it kind of, it, it reminds me so much of a sort of updated 2023, 2024 sort of reading of the postmodern, right? Like this mm-hmm. is the postmodern condition, you know, before we no longer believe in the grand narratives of progress in western liberal democracy and yada 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 and so now we're kind of trapped in this world and so what has come to define the postmodern epoch is nihilism i don't know if that's overly reductive but does that not seem kind of oh now i'm now i'm do I'm, I'm phrasing it in the same way that she says whenever someone says does that not seem this you're kind of, <laughs> you're kind of like forcing the hand um but to me, it seems that that's kind of one of the ways that we can understand the kind of nihilistic age that she's investigating. Yeah, I mean, I think this is part of what we're talking about um, a little bit ago, talking about uh, Schaefer's How Should We Then Live, right? Where um, mm. it seems like there's this kind of cycle of the discourse um, going back and forth and regurgitating the same things with new names. And yeah, I don't think that her sort of diagnosis of nihilistic times is all that uh, new or innovative, right? It's it's the kind of thing that um, everyone, I think, probably in, in various, various academic and philosophical perspectives sees as like the problem of the modern age or like the post-Enlightenment age or whatever, right? Um, I think what maybe is new or innovative about what she's doing is, is thinking through specifically Weaver's um, notion of the ethic of responsibility as being sort of a guiding force through this sort of predicament. Mm. She's trying to think about rather how, than the ethic, rather than the ethics of conviction or ultimate ends. The the, the two ethics that she thinks or ultimate ends when they're when yeah. they're not integrated with the ethic of responsibility can be destructive. Right? Yeah, this is great. I, I really like this because it makes me think then that so nihilism isn't itself like a universal thing, but it's it's almost like the nihilistic times are contextual as responses to collapses of certain social orders or cultural values, which means that there have been many nihilistic times. We could probably go to Rome, and I'm sure there was a nihilistic time relative to the Roman experience. There was probably a nihilistic time in Greece relative to the kind of Greek experience. There probably was a nihilistic time earlier in America where it was like the post-revolutionary sentiment, right? Where it was changing and, and beliefs, were like at least from some people's perspective. And, and so maybe there is like a, like a relative positioning of the nihilistic experience. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's exactly right. And that speaks, I think, to the fact that 
and I think this is one of the things that Brown maybe doesn't fully um, conceptualize, although I we haven't read her book, so it's hard to say exactly. But yeah, it seems like nihilism is a kind of um, negative moment when the legitimacy of a social order of some kind, whether it's political or ideological or whatever, starts mm. to degrade, right? And what's important there is that it's not just that sort of a social or political order um, fails to gain legitimacy and so people are frustrated and they get nihilistic and they want to like do drugs and listen to punk music or whatever, right? Uh, it's kind of funny how she names <laughs> she names school shootings and punk rock as the two features of the nihilistic age. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, can, can there be an in-between of those two things? Because <laughs> punk rock is pretty cool and school shootings are not, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, the, the point being like, What's important there about the legitimacy of a social order is that part of the function of a social order is to embody meaningful activities um, and mm. values for a society, right? Um, this is part of the thing that sort of the Enlightenment age of reason can't do for us, right? Reason and science, specifically science, can't embody values for us. They can't tell us what's important, right? But social orders, when they're doing well, they can do that. Like you can have an art institute which celebrates the fact that art is super important and that coming to the Institute and engaging in art for no other reason than to make the art is valuable. And you're around a bunch of people who do it with you, right? You go to that, you care about it, you find a meaningful activity and it doesn't have to justify itself. It's self-justifying, right? When those sorts of embodied institutions, social institutions go away and then that society you know, on a mass scale loses its legitimacy because it's not providing any embodiment of those meaningful, meaningful and valuable activities, then you fall into a nihilistic moment, right? It's like a social kind of collapse that happens. Mm. And that happens in individual life too, right? When you're um, isolated from people that you care about and not able to engage with them, um, when you have you know um, relationships break down or someone passes away or something, right? You go through periods where the, they're kind of like a nihilistic period because that that super important, meaningful, or valuable thing is no longer around to self-justify why you do what you do for you, right? Um, so yeah, I think it's super important to think about nihilism as that kind of collapse, right? Because it means not only does it help explain why that nihilistic moment is happening, right? It also gives you ways out of it, like lines of flight from it, because you can think about, well, mm -hmm. what would it mean for there to be um, social institutions which function in the right way so as to combat the nihilism, right? And the academy is one of those things, and it's the one she talks about most in the interview, but you can think about all the different kinds of institutions which exist in society that have that kind of role or function. And when you look around neoliberal capitalism in America circa 21st century, what do you see but the complete disappearance of any of those kinds of institutions, right? I mean, just look at like the status of journalism right now. Um, I mean, probably our listeners aren't super into sports, but like the LA Times just laid off like hundreds of their journalists and a lot of the people who were. Yeah, in sports. I saw someone that was actually on a business trip in New York from the LA Times and they got laid off and they found out about it online and their business card that they used to book their flight for their business trip to New York got suspended so that they couldn't book their trip home from the work trip that they got sent on. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 completely despairing to see this kind of stuff, right? Um, and to think about their that discourse and is not going to is increasingly becoming um, unmoored and divorced from like research and care and good explanation 
all these things that journalists help provide. And instead are going to be a bunch of, you know, claptraps developed by AI, which are completely devoid of meaning and, and are impossible Fuck. to decipher, right? That just speaks to the fact that in basically every area of life, every you know, every sort of meaningful activity is being cannibalized by the need for immediate profit, right? And that just speaks to, you know, neoliberal capitalism doesn't do anything but um, like erase these social the, the proper function of these social institutions to embody meaning and value for us right and that's part of why we feel alienated from this kind of society it's good that we feel alienated from it we should be right the second we're not alienated anymore we've sort of given up and we've sort of lost our humanity in a certain way i would think that, that's what i was going to ask you do you think that there's actually something productive about the nihilistic times insofar as the nihilistic times is in some ways um an orientation, a mood, maybe, that is responding to the collapse of a social order and a cultural order that itself isn't necessarily something, the bemoaning of the kind of detachment of our moorings from those previous values doesn't mean that, oh, we should therefore go back to reclaim those values. That's the kind of like reactionary conservative response Mm -hmm. to the nihilistic times. But that the nihilistic times is in some ways actually a really kind of I hesitate to use the word good thing, but that there is something positive about it because it is a sort of recognition that the previous order was insufficient, that we reject the previous order. We just need tools now to help us recreate, to create a new order, to create new worlds, which is one of the things that she said that was really beautiful, and I can't remember where it was, but it was something about that, right, is like, we need the tools now, not of just like reason and rationality and scientific analysis, but rather we need the tools now to actually construct and build new world orders in the face of climate breakdown and political tumult and economic exploitation and yada, 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 yada right? Which to me, that, that rings really true to my own interest in, in centering of the imagination as being something that is like, that needs to be centered in a productive social cultural, political, economic project of world constructing, life constructing, community constructing, order constructing, etc. Yeah, that's probably, the, that's, that, that's sort of the, the most sort of, I don't know if you call it like a, the banality of neoliberal capitalism, right? Is that you can sort of just reject any idea of there being a social order or the social order will sort of take care of itself, right? Which really just means that the, mar- that, like, the market governs it, right? Which really, of course, just means that those who are already own property and capitalists um, basically run it for their own profit, right? Um, we have to engage in this process of, of building a social order. And we have to do so carefully. And I think uh, obviously a big part of her argument is that Vibra was trying to think through what is the ethic of, of, of attempting to build this, respond to the nihilistic moment in the appropriate way. There's, there's wrong ways to do that, especially if you use you know, merely the ethic of conviction on one side thinking of that as mostly the left, although there could be right versions of that as well, or the ethic of ultimate ends, which is the, the, the one um, probably most often associated with like neoliberal capitalism, uh, especially like a utilitarian version. Um, but yeah, I mean, nihilism is the punk moment, right? It's, the, it's not only instrumentally valuable because it's going to help you get through that moment to appreciate it, like a stage, it's like a stage of grief, right? The loss of the social order has to be aggrieved before it can be built anew. But also it's just authentic in an appropriate way right because it's you're Mm. sensitive to the collapse of a social order and that's important for like knowing how things actually are for understanding and truth 
Um, that's right. That's like the 70s punk moment is actually a really interesting and important experience to investigate as as a nihilistic time that was responding to the collapse of a social order. Like, look at the UK in the 70s. What the fuck's going on? Look at the US in the 70s. What's going on? Of course you're going to have a group of disaffected youth that are responding in this way, you know? And I think there's actually really something kind of potent about... It would actually be a really interesting study. I'm sure there are studies that have looked at it in this way, but framing it within the way that, that Brown does here as the nihilistic times is to kind of do like a a survey of other nihilistic times within a, a, a period, you know, like in the 20th century, nihilistic times in the 20th, the 20th century, and do kind of like a, this is a kind of nihilistic moment, and this is a nihilistic moment, and what were the responses by individuals who were disaffected, and that they did feel that they were, they were being displaced, and so how did they respond in either their reactionary or maybe in their kind of like um, progressive or in their productive responses to that in various different ways. Yeah, I mean, don't you think this kind of happens in any area of of meaningful activity that even in the arts where you can have a kind of nihilistic moment that has to be sort of, the, you have to tarry with that negative to get through it, to use Hegelian terms. So like I think about my favorite filmmakers, the Coen brothers as being this, right? They're kind of nihilists in a certain sense in, in their 90s um, output especially. Um, and and those those films like Big Lebowski and A Brother Where Art Thou and Miller's Crossing and Fargo and all those, right? Um, a lot of those films have a kind of nihilism to them because there's, there's no, you know, moral lesson at the end. No one gets better um, or improves or learns anything about the universe, right? In fact, one of their best films... Um, uh, a serious man, right? Um, mm. It's kind of about this search for meaning, ending up with nothing but catastrophe, right? Because there's nothing to learn. Um, it's heavily nihilistic mm. in that way. Um, but that that seems to have been, given this the state of uh, cinema at the time, a super important moment to work through, right? And probably would be a lot different if it happened now. Part of the historic, like the historical understanding of, of cinema and of any art, I would think, is to um, place the artist, the art, artistic object in that context to better understand the way it, the role that it played um, at the time. So yes, I mean, do you think that that kind of using this frame of nihilistic moments that you tarry with and work through can be applied to basically any kind of activity? That's what. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm, I'm thinking. Yeah. I do like I'm thinking that you could you could apply it to like nihilistic moments in a lack of faith in the economy right or um, you know like moments in in um, like obviously you can look at it with regards to like the political landscape but yeah I do I do think that there's a way that you can take this as sort of a um, like a heuristic that you can apply to a bunch of different contexts. And I think it will help you. Like I'm even thinking now of like religious nihilism because obviously a serious man you mentioned, so my mind starts thinking about Job. And so I, I start thinking about like the construction of Torah. And Torah is probably constructed, um, obviously Job's not in Torah, but it just that's where my mind went. Um, construction of Torah is, is taking place, you know, in ba- Babylonian captivity um, and based on like, you know, 
oral tradition and, and probably scraps of writings and stuff like that that have been around for a long time. And so then it's probably compiled, you know, you know, what is that, like 6th, 5th century BCE? Um, and so what's happening there is an effort by the Levitical priesthood, particularly the Aaronic line, to legitimate its authority when uh, they're going to have some semblance of freedom that's granted back to them to say, okay, now we need to establish or, quote, reestablish in their minds establish a social establish a social order mm-hmm. you know it's it's kind of like what the protestants did where they're like well actually all along the reading was always this it was just that it got lost a little bit in captivity when the catholic church you know so they go back to augustine to try to be like see we can we can skip over the middle ages when all the bad stuff was happening in medievalism when they misunderstood it but all along the truth was always there i think there's something similar in the construction of torah where it's kind of like okay well we're going to reclaim the truth of something that was always there in our traditions and then they solidify it and they canonize it and they singularize it so that they can legitimize um, the authority of the ironic line of the Levitical priesthood, which is kind of a conservative approach, which is why then you get the prophets that are like, hold on a second, fuck you guys, you know? <laughs> um, and so you do get this battle that kind of emerges out of a nihilistic moment. And what's the nihilistic moment? The fucking utter annihilation of their social life, the total the annihilation of their theopolitical institutions because of, you know, being conquered by, by various... Uh, imperial powers so like that's another way that we could look at like a nihilistic time so that's just an example that uh, of how we could kind of use this as a um as a heuristic i think what do you what do you think yeah and what's helpful about that is it kind of dissuades us from the notion that there's something special about like the enlightenment in this particular way yes right Uh, it's not just that you know we were always grounded in this enchanted world and then the enlightenment came along and was like that's some bullshit and now we're all stuck Mm. in, in nihilism like, no, it's not the case. And I think this is one thing I, I wanted to push back on Browning, um, push back a little bit on Brown about is that she she seems to think that there's like, or have, has this sort of like, there's an important truth about nihilism, which is that truth and goodness and rationality are not like on our side, right? Um, so we kind of have to just face up to that fact and then create meaning on our own. And there's something about that that I think is important and true. Um but also, I just – I don't think people are nihilistic in general, hmm. nor do I think people tend towards nihilism when they're not um, absent of sort of social pressures, right? I think even when people are, have like a kind of political nihilism or they tend towards like um, – she mentions at some point, like she says, uh, even Trump supporters don't believe he won the 2020 election, but they don't, they don't care. They just, they just sort of <laughs> – Say I did because, wonder about that because truth doesn't matter anymore to them. I'm like, that's that's some bullshit. Like, come on, I live in Trump country, okay? Um, yeah, they believe it. Well, yeah. one they one they believe it, um, but also that's not even the important thing. The important thing is that they they are they're aggrieved, right? They 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 mm. believe that they're aggrieved, um, and the the election is just sort of the the catch all um, embodiment of the of the aggrievedness, right? Which goes way beyond that and involves you know, decades of, of, of believing that they've been sort of um, dismissed from the social and political sphere and, and humiliated and not giving proper respect and things like that. And whatever you want to say about mm. how accurate that is, a lot of it's not accurate, right? Um, the point, I think, is just that people in general, I think, are craved. They crave for meaning and value. Everybody does. And, you know, um, 
very sort of rare exceptions aside. And social orders are the things that are nihilistic. It's the times that are nihilistic. I think the title of the book is appropriate in that sense, but people are not. And so when people find themselves in a nihilistic time, in a society that sort of lost that kind of legitimacy and that has this crisis of the social order, they're alienated. And the alienation from that comes out in all these different and usually dysfunctional ways and involves, you know, post-truth stuff and hypocrisy and, you know, special pleading, whatever else, right? But it's not because people are like fundamentally nihilistic or fundamentally irrational, right? No, but they're alienated from a society that fundamentally is like making them that, right? Or encouraging them or motivating them to be that way. Um, so the important thing I think there is to recognize that it's the social order that's the problem that's lost legitimacy for people. And that always, you know, and sometimes people respond to that in appropriate ways and they don't think about the lost legitimacy in the appropriate way or their, their sense of in which it's illegitimate is totally wrong because it's like governed by the deep state or QAnon or whatever, right? But that ultimately just comes back to the fact of some much longer, more robust, deep sense um, of illegitimacy, which has, uh, I think, for the most part, accurate roots. Like, it is a nihilistic time that we live in because the social order doesn't provide us um, frames for self-respect and frames for understanding one's place in the world that involves engaging in meaningful activity, right? Um, I don't think it's a surprise that a lot of the people that feel aggrieved are often in jobs and occupations and locations where there's no sense of real self-respect or meaning in them, right? Um, hmm. So anyway, um, I think the point there is just that to really push on this notion that it's the social order that's nihilistic and not people, generally speaking. Do you think this is where her kind of, which I'm partial to, her social constructionism comes out a little bit more than maybe you're comfortable with. And this is where we can see the Foucauldian idea of like subjective constitution comes out where it's, it's not that people are essentially nihilistic per se, but under nihilistic times, they become so constituted. And so they become sort of like nihilistic subjects, so to speak. And yes, the social order is nihilistic Yes, the times are nihilistic, but the reason that we can speak about them as being nihilistic is because it isn't just simply the structure of the social order and that subjects are separate from it or kind of like externally related to it, but that there is a sort of sense in which they're enmeshed with each other. And so therefore subjectivity itself under nihilistic times becomes nihilistic subjectivity. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't argue against any of that, um, at least on a small scale, right? That's social constructionism. Again, it's one of those things where um, it's vacuously true, but also the strong version of it's obviously false. And so it's like, it's clearly somewhere in between, right? There's a push and pull between subjective constitution by a social order and um, one's own individual action, right? Um, I guess the, the point is just like, it seems like Brown sort of accepts, and again, this is having not read the book, so I don't want to, you know, speak out of turn or anything, but the sense in which I think she's giving too much credence to the idea that like values are now post enlightenment, these lightweight um, sort of non-robust things. And we just have to kind of live with that fact and sort of act as if it's not true or something. I don't know what exactly the, the response is supposed to be. Uh, I just think that's kind of false. I think if you, if you have a social order that embodies meaningful values, people respond to it appropriately, generally, right, speaking. Um, 
And I think people crave that. And when they lack that, when they only have these lightweight values to work with, then yeah, all this dysfunctional shit comes out, right? Um, but that speaks again to mm. the social order and not to individuals. And of course, you know, you can look at like the most politically active individuals and point to like all the nihilistic um, features of their reasoning and their actions and behavior and so on, right? But that's not going to speak to most people. Most people are not online. Important caveat to any of this, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you come across regular people, generally speaking, they aren't nihilistic, right? They have things that they care about mm-hmm. um, and things that matter to them that are self-justifying. And usually the dysfunctional stuff just comes out when those things are not able to sort of occupy the appropriate role in a social order. Hmm. It, it's it's tangential to what we're talking about, but I think it's it's also intimately related, which is that I was reading this and I kept thinking about this idea that like, you know, now we just, it, it, we're inundated by trivial values rather than kind of like the capital V values that, that maybe have collapsed that define the nihilistic times. And I started thinking about, you know, the Marxian dictum that a lot of people like to talk about that everything that's solid melts into air. Yeah. Which actually, I actually, I have come to completely disagree with that as being a valid statement of things. I think I understand the point of it, which is that capitalism does operate through a process of like disruption and and dismantling, and it breaks things into parts, so to speak, right? But I actually don't think that it melts into air. I, I think that that actually inverts what happens. I actually think that the way that capitalism operates and the way that neoliberal governance operates which i think relates to kind of like world construction and then inform informing rationality and how we value things even in the maybe the trivial sense as brown is is saying here is is actually the opposite it does it through the construction of more values through the construction of more solidity and what i mean by that is and maybe this is different maybe i'm kind of like splitting hairs here because like the marxist would be like no no but that's the point that this construction of new values are flimsy values they're not the solid values that you know that marx was talking about but i think what happens is is you don't get this like disillusion into air or or kind of nothingness or anything like that but what you get is actually the construction of more and more and more and more socially formed ideas and identities according to the kind of abstract tendency of enclosure of capitalist social reproduction, which means that something like neoliberalism isn't... It, it has a fucking social order that it is intending to build. Like, neoliberalism emerges under a period where the global south the third world are coming together with the non-aligned movement and the new international economic order in 74, where they're trying to say, hey, the global economic order is unjust. We demand equal rights within a new international economic order. And Kissinger comes along and starts tearing apart these G77 states by pitting the oil importers from the oil exporters. And trying to split apart the socialist states from the kind of non-socialist states. And the result is the actual construction of a new international economic order, which is neoliberalism in the later 70s. And so it's a 
It's a political project that is driven by a concerted effort to create a political or a, a, a supranational order um, for the benefit of kind of Western imperialism, I think um, white supremacy, etc., etc. So, like, there, there, there's. It's not like that. The that which is solid melts into air. It's actually like that which is solid becomes more solid and more dispersed and more intensified. It just becomes like it just becomes universalized through micro bits rather than just the veneer of it being a singular kind of blob that existed before. And I think, yeah, go ahead. No, I was gonna say this is really good. I think because this is getting at. I think some of the issues I have with Brown's characterization here, because I wrote down the exact phrase you did about is, is Brown basically just saying um, uh, all that solid melts into air here. And it seems like, so she combines the, the, the tripartite um, uh, sort of ax, axis of like passionate nationalism, communism, and neoliberalism as the three kinds mm-hmm. of uh, movements that she thinks um function in this like ultimate ends ethic, right? Where all that matters is getting towards this important state and whatever means you can take to get there is, is fine. There's something interesting about combining those three, right? Because they're often seen as enemies in some ways, especially communism and neoliberalism, right? Um, hmm. But what's important there is that like, well, think about passionate nationalism and communism. There's some pretty damn hmm. robust, solid values in there right Mm -hmm. and neoliberalism is kind of characterized against those as having these flimsy lightweight values where nothing ultimately really matters right but what's what's wrong about that i think or what that misses maybe even though i think it's it's important to to think about them um next to each other is that well there really are values in neoliberalism right they're just extremely alienating right like Mm. neoliberalism tells you to do certain things and the certain things matter the problem is they don't (laughs) right like you can grift your way towards success in neoliberalism (laughs) right i mean but the problem is even if you have success at it look at the people who are most successful under neoliberalism look at elon musk this dude is like craving for attention like nothing is satisfying Mm. in his life it's very clear when you look at the richest people in the world bill ackman or whatever that guy who's like exposed his own wife's plagiarism and going after harvard It's like, oh my God, like these people have nothing in life that satisfies them. Why can't you just be rich and go on an island and drink like martinis or whatever? You got to do this shit. That's what a bunch yeah. of people, yeah, a bunch of people ripped him about that. <laughs> like even even rich people now have bad imaginations, like fucking hell. <laughs> yeah, it just speaks, that's just a kind of a microcosm of the fact that um, uh, whatever values do exist in our neoliberalism, and they are, there's values there that you're sort of told to pursue, is they're alienating. Right, they don't actually matter, and people sort of people's self respect is violated when they're told to go after that. We were talking about this last time with Tommy Shelby's paper, right? That a critique you often get from working class people of sort of um, managerial, um, institutional, uh, bourgeois life is that yeah, I guess it would be nice to like have more money and and not have to work as hard and stuff, but like that life seems fake. And inauthentic. And it seems like you kind of have to lie a lot and put on a face in front of people. I'm like, that's not worth, my integrity is not worth that. Right. And so oftentimes that kind of stuff gets couched as like a cover or a rationalization for, for class envy. 
whatever. But I think it's true. I think a lot of working class people don't want to necessarily pursue a life where they might be more wealthy and more comfortable because it cuts against mm-hmm. their self-respect and their integrity, right? And then the same kind of phenomenon we're thinking about on a larger scale here is that the values that neoliberal, neoliberalism offers you just aren't valuable. And most people realize that. And the people who don't realize it, who just kind of put the blinders on and, and pursue those values anyway, end up totally unsatisfied and appropriately so because those things don't really matter in the end. So it's not it's not the point that that capitalism melts all the values away so they're gone and now you're left totally devoid of anything meaningful. It gives you a, a sort of an opportunity to pursue a life of meaning, but then it's a lie. It's not meaningful and you're not going to be satisfied with it. And that's and that's where the disconnect comes is that you're promised a life of meaning. And so it sort of like it fucks with you. And then what it does is it displaces the responsibility from the system to you, right? So it promises the life of meaning. And then it says, but if you haven't found that meaning yet, you just gotta you gotta invest in the system harder. You gotta have more side hustles. You gotta believe more. And this is where the religious dogma comes in because it's the same sort of idea. It's like, well, if you feel guilty, that's because you've sinned. Rather than mm-hmm. being like, well, wait a second, maybe the framework of that is inducing the guilt in the first place, like the, the, the debt in the first place, is bullshit. If you have doubts, you're not believing hard enough, right? That's it. Yeah, I mean, that's it. and that's 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 how mon- that's how the monetary system works. It's never the economy's fault. It's never the economic order's fault. It's oh well, we're just not actually. It's just um, oh, unions are still messing with the price mechanism, or the government is still um, engaging too much fiscal messing rather than just letting like monetary policy just do what it's going to do. Because if you just let money and the market kind of do its thing, it would all even out in the end. But because we're not pure enough. It's our fault. It's your fault. The consumer's fault. Um, public representatives. It's your fault. It, it, you know, and it's the same kind of shit. Yeah, I think this this kind of continues the theme of like the nihilistic moment here is not new. It's just the fact that any social order which ultimately doesn't offer um, embodied sort of forms of meaningful activity and values is not going to gain legitimacy. And so it's going to have to create some explanation or rationalization for why you failed it rather than it failed you in order to continue to exist, mm. right? So any legitimate, any illegitimate social order is going to have to create some explanation for why people reject it in a way that excuses it and blames the person. And that seems to be a kind of unique feature of, of neoliberal capitalism in, in that we talk about this sort of sense of uh, individual responsibility um, being sort of place on a person when actually it's it's a sort of social mechanism that's functioning in a certain way. But that's, again, like you were saying, that's true of even the, the conservative evangelical social order we grew up in, right? That same phenomenon exists. It's not really a new thing. It's just the way that illegitimate social orders try to survive. Yeah, and this is why it's not true that all that is solid melts into air under capitalism because actually all that you thought was solid just becomes reconsolidated in a more solid form, but it's just abstracted away from you. Or what's what's true about the phrase "all that solid melts into air" is just that's the nihilistic moment, right? When the what you thought was solid mm. no longer has the reason-giving force it used to have because because you now see it as illegitimate, right? That's just sort of the that's nihilistic, so good. Yeah, that's the nihilistic moment that any illegitimate social order goes through. This would be a way then to kind of critically engage with the Marxian milieu 
or let's say Marx's milieu that because obviously Marx isn't the only kind of like socialist thinker at that time. There's, you know, like romantic socialism, et cetera, et cetera, right? There was something happening in Europe at that time that created a, a, a set of conditions out of which the Marxian paradigm emerges, the anarchist paradigm emerges, um, uh, the kind of romantic socialist paradigm emerges, right? And so there's something interesting then about seeing the Marxian response and therefore its elaboration as kind of like attesting to a certain nihilistic time, we might say, and then all the formulations that try to expand upon it. And this is where one of my frustrations is, is, you know, a lot of times we talk about, you know, they're still asking like 19th century questions, right? Is mm. maybe that's it, is maybe there's still a lot of like an entrapment within a sort of 19th century framework Right. Also, like there are a lot of Marxists who are like, yeah, it's because Marx was in Manchester. If Marx was in Birmingham, his entire conception of industrial capitalism would have been very different because it had a very different sort of uh, way of actually, um, you know, engaging in their in their in their production uh, processes. Right. So there's 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 something contextual about it as being a response to the nihilistic times that needs to be understood so that we don't absolutize it. And as much as Marxist scholars and Marxist philosophers and Marxist political economists are like, yes, 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 we know that, they still oftentimes fall into that trap. And I think that's kind of maybe what Wendy Brown meant by using communism as a sort of, um, a, you know, like a bugbear that she was like distancing herself from. It's the the absolutization, kind of like worldview Marxism kind of thing that comes out of the nihilistic times rather than the value of the critique of political economy as found in Marx, which she does find value in, right? So yeah, I think maybe yeah. that's kind of the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that reminds me of like, I think I've told you before, I want to write a paper someday about how the doctrine of election is the most pernicious doctrine um, in the history of theology. Um, oh, tell me more, tell me more, yeah. Uh, the basic idea being like, seeing oneself as, as a special chosen emissary is kind of the ground of like yes. all imperial bullshit and apartheid and stuff and that you see the same sort of logic of election operating even in non-religious political spheres like in apartheid um states and things like that um and it, mm. the, the, the idea originally for me was that i wanted to talk about carl bart's inversion of election so that election isn't about god choosing people but god choosing himself um to be to be the, the emissary to to humanity basically uh and being like that mm. was the the moment where election or like whatever could have been saved about election was was true by not making it about uh, special individuals being chosen. Anyway, there's mm. a kind of sense of that, right? In this like, Brown calls it the ethic of ultimate ends, where she combines um, or uh, compares nationalism, communism, and neoliberalism as being sort of similar. They all kind of have this like, we're the special people, we're in a special moment of history that's unique compared to mm. all the others. We're emissaries for bringing about this ideal state. Right, whatever it is, whether it's you know the nationalist one, the communist one, or a neoliberal uh, free market one, they all have that same kind of logic to them, right? And that's again, it, it kind of speaks to this like we really need to be careful about thinking of ourselves as being in a special, unique time that's never been seen before. We're the last mm. generation. We're the most important ones, right? Uh, we're the ones who need mm -hmm. to bring about the, the ideal society or whatever like that, uh, and and no one else that like no one else have the opportunity, but only we do, right? That's a kind of perverse way of thinking, I think. And it doesn't mean that we need to think about this time as being the same as all the other times. There's a kind of conservative logic to that, too, 
Um, but I do think we want to be wary of like this. Um, we're special. Our times are special. It's never happened before. We're completely unique. That can oftentimes um, lead to poor thinking. Um, whereas, yeah, this in- this is where. No, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, go go ahead. Yeah. Well, that was. This is where Sartre's critique of like Lukash and um, like Stalinism comes from, and it postpones kind of critique of of state socialism. Um, communism um, of the 20th century comes from is that it like centers the working class as having a privileged position sort of beyond um, beyond the implications of capital's encroachment right that there is a sort of a vantage a special vantage of the working class which you do see still obviously reproduced a lot in in contemporary kind of like lefty circles um, that do fetishize and romanticize the working class right and that it does it sets up this we're the pure, uncorrupted, um, you know, just by virtue of our subject position, whereas they and all of y'all that are caught up in the encroachment of capitalism are, you know, you're mystified, right? And that there's something, there's, there's, there's something about the, the, the unique vantage of the working class that is inherently excessive of the system. Whereas somebody like Postone and Sartre, they're kind of like, well, actually, all that ends up doing is what you just said is kind of like self-legitimizing the elected kind of position that is able to stand outside. And this is where I think we can bring in Paul Livingston. This is like the criteriological orientation, which is the circle is drawn around that which is rational or irrational or true or not true or the just and the unjust. And the pure is outside, right? Like the working class stand outside or the party uh, stands outside. And they're able to kind of like judge while they themselves are immune from totality because they exist in some sort of state of exception like a position of like transcendent exception beyond totality they're already the embodiment of the future just not fully realized yet Mm. it's interesting that that kind of is a nice segue to what seems to be brown's most important i think it's most important to her in this book or at least in this interview is this idea of the ethic of responsibility like what do you do when you're in a place where you realize your historical situatedness. And so you don't think of yourself as being sort of some special emissary for the universal ideal state or whatever. Um, but you do want to have like passionate commitment to a thing. Right. And yeah. so she says Weber's ethic of responsibility involves this deep, passionate commitment to a particular cause, but it integrates that with, um, the notion, two notions, basically, she says. One is that the notion that politics is a singular sphere that's always contingent, so your actions won't necessarily produce um, what you think. You're, in fact, they may produce something at odds mm-hmm. with what you're motivated in the first place, right? Um, so, you know, contrary to like uh, pure means end reasoning or thinking you can sort of bring about an ultimate state through the appropriate actions, some ideal state through the appropriate mm-hmm. actions. And then, secondly, um, that politics is always violent. And so there's always violence like waiting in the wings uh, and the sort of um, potential for violence in any political class. And that, that sort of gives you pause to think about what you do, right? And so she contrasts that ethic of responsibility with these two other ethics, which we've both mentioned. But just to reiterate, one is the ethic of ultimate ends, which is where she combines nationalism, communism, neoliberalism in this sort of pure means and reasoning. 
we're going to bring about the ideal state no matter what. That's our purpose, right? We, we don't really have any agency other than to bring about this historical trajectory that we've specially been entitled to. And then the ethics of conviction or ethic of conviction, which is this sort of principle that exists outside of any um, sort of practical reasoning. She she names like nonviolence mm-hmm. and Christian love. I thought those were kind of weird examples. Um, I thought so too. I know because <laughs> I I wanted to ask you about like are are convictions always bad principle and how does that differ from from the ethic of responsibility with like attesting to justice or whatever we might call it without having some sort of like reasoned attachment to principles of something like is it just that you can have principles but just don't hold them dogmatically. Yeah, that that's where I wanted to get more discussion, right? And I'm obviously very interested in this because mm-hmm. I, I think a lot about, um, I want to think a lot about how moral principles um, work in practical life and what it means to act on principle, right? And so it seems kind of weird to me that she contrasted the ethic of responsibility with the ethic of ultimate ends and especially the ethic of conviction where you have this principle and you don't regard the political implications or consequences of acting on that principle, you just act on the principle no matter what. It's kind of a beautiful soul style um, of life, right? And so I'm curious what you think. My my initial sense was that these shouldn't be contrasted as three different ethics. And she may not actually do this in the book, so I don't know for sure. But it seems more to me like the ethic of responsibility is an integration of the ethic of conviction with the ethic of responsibility, basically, right? It's a combination of them Um, because the ethic of conviction is about this deep commitment, which is an important part, constituent part of the ethic of responsibility. You have to have the deep commitments, right? Um, And then a a check on that, right, is the idea. And so the important thing for me seems to be, look, the ethic ethic of conviction is necessary but insufficient on its own. And the important point there seems to be that the principle isn't what's important ultimately, right? The principle like guides you towards what's important. So you think about the principle of nonviolent or Christian love, right? Um, what seems to me wrong about thinking of those as being the principles is I guess, I guess nonviolence is a principle. I don't know that Christian love is like a principle <laughs> necessarily so much as like a virtue maybe. And maybe there's something to say there about the, the, um, distinction between principles and virtues, and maybe they're more closely associated than like a binary would would admit. But um, I guess if like a principle of nonviolence would be something like, obviously, I, I'll, I'll just I'm a pacifist. I'll never engage in violence for any reason whatsoever, right? And I can see why like someone who acts on that well, universe. The, the principle of Christian love could put the abused in a situation of just like waiting for their like eventual salvation in another world, right? Like what you do just you mean? Say more. Always, t- so maybe that's what she's. That's why she's talking about Christian love is because it's just you know unwavering and it's always there. Then it can put the person who's either abused or in a position of injustice of just accepting their position of being abused and um, placed in a position of injustice because like the promise or the hope of some sort of future reward. So maybe that's where the Christian love kind of fits in with that, right? If you commit yourself to that, then that that can't be something that is going to ultimately lead to justice or any sort of like transformation of the social order because you just will be put down or beat down perpetually. Okay. So like a, a kind of humility without any regard for self-respect or something like that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, again, that that's I'm using the language of virtues on purpose, right? Uh, and that speaks to like when the virtues. This is like an Aristotelian point, a classic one, right? If the virtues aren't integrated, then they're not really the virtues, <laughs> right? Um, they have to work together, and they work to check each other in important ways. Uh, in fact, one of the great injustices of an illegitimate social order is when it encourages you to act on one virtue in a way that that sort of subverts another. So a a sort of um, ecclesiastical or theological social backed social order that encourages Christian love in a way that is totally good, right? Be humble, care for others as you would care for yourself, things like that, right? But then uses that to reinforce a hierarchy in like the nuclear family where the you know wife or whomever is supposed to be um, hum- humble and dainty and never speak against the husband or whatever. That's hmm. sort of using, uh, weaponizing a virtue, one virtue to act against the other of like self-respect, right? Uh, and care for oneself. Um, that's the kind of serious injustice that a social order can engage itself in, right? That seems to me to be the important point. Like, it's not about the ethic of conviction necessarily being a bad thing or acting on it being suspect or as if people who who act on on like really strong conviction on their moral principles are are sort of engaging in, in political malfeasance or something like that. It's more just like, well, that again speaks to the illegitimacy of the social order when acting on a good principle or developing a true virtue ends up um, having these adverse consequences. That's usually a fault of the social order, not necessarily the individual who's acting on that that virtue or principle. And does that make any sense? Mm. Yeah, it does. And I'm I'm trying to think here. That, that there's something there's something I think deeply unsatisfying about the ethic of responsibility from just a an emotional like um, an emotional and and libidinal perspective that I think the ethics of contingency and um what does it means end offer which is that like it's unsatisfying if you are concerned about a just world and you have to admit to yourself that contingency reigns and that you're probably not going to have not only are you not going to see the benefit but even the way that you're formulating what you think the benefit might be probably won't end up being the thing 100 500 years down the line whereas when you are the the communist who has the clear conviction or the means end logic that I am living for X and that is the end goal. Even if you don't see its realization in life, you can kind of like live a life and then die knowing that you stood for something. And that has a real kind of, I think, emotional appeal. Like Mm -hmm. it grounds you, it gives you something. Whereas this ethics of responsibility is much harder to convince people of because you kind of are trying to sell them on something that's like, yeah, but guess what? You won't get any sort of satisfaction from this. And then here's where maybe there's something then kind of transformative about the ethic of responsibility is that maybe the means and logic or the kind of ethic of conviction is partly itself a consumerist logic. Is that as a result to the nihilistic times, they are trivialized in their own wielding of this image because it gives you meaning and it gives you purpose, but maybe in a trivialized sense. I don't know. 
Yeah, there's something there about, I mean, I've even been using the language of like consumption here when talking about meaning and value, right? But what's sometimes mm. so, what I think is interesting about this is that it, that's opaque to most people, right? No one, unless they've taken a philosophy class or whatever, starts thinking about whether the things that they're doing are meaningful or valuable. It's only when you start like doing self-reflection in the philosophical way that you start thinking about that stuff, right? And that can be, you know, mm. part of the poison that maybe you shouldn't do philosophy. But I think otherwise mm-hmm. that you should do those things and be reflective about that um, for many reasons that we don't go into. But you can think about meaning and value as being the kind of thing you consume. That's the mistake, the point of meaningful activity. It's the activity that matters, right? And I think also the people that you're engaging in activity with. Um, that matter ultimately. That's why you don't have to think about whether the things that you're doing that you think matter actually matter. You're just doing them and they matter, right? It's only when you get into a state where now that's been taken away or like a a social order is, you know, delegitimized itself or whatever, you find yourself in the nihilistic moment. Now you got to start thinking about it. It's almost, it's kind of Heideggerian, like um, ready at hand, uh, ready to hand, president hand thing, right? Only when it's broken does Mm -hmm. it actually become president hand. Um, Right. So we should, yeah, try to avoid this language of like, we do these activities so we can consume the meaning from them. That's a kind of utilitarian, like do the things so you get the pleasure, but the pleasure is ultimately the thing that matters, right? No, the meaning right. doesn't, isn't what matters. It's the thing that's meaningful, right? That matters. Um, so we should try to, and so like the, the, lo- the ethic of ultimate ends has that kind of consumerist utilitarian kind of logic to it, right? Where you would engage yeah. in... Um, sort of this uh, universal bringing about of the ultimate ideal state because that provides this meaningful sort of motivation to you. Like you really matter and what you're doing really matters for some ultimate goal. And you get this like rush of euphoria in engaging with that, right? That's a kind of, I mean, I I think it's it's broader than just consumerism. Consumerism is probably more like one instantiation of of this kind of mistake. It's a formalism that consumerism is able to kind of um, enclose. Right, yeah. You know, in, in, in all kinds of various ways. But it's the formalism of the very sort of Marxian orientation that really centers the future that then retrojects back into the present that then justifies how you order in the present. But it's all based on this like future image that you've projected into the future that then kind of like determines the orientation in the present that can be commodified or consumerized or whatever. And that's that, that, that to me is actually the fundamental problem with Marxist theory is, is that it, it's not an all Marxist theory, especially like certain post-Marxist theory, but this is one of the things that I have some articles coming out on and in my, my next book. It's that the, the conception of time, the time orientation in relation to the future is the very thing that restricts Marxian theory within a certain formalist conception and that is what then produces kind of these problems that Brown is talking about here. But it also is the thing that is the great motivator. And that's what's really tough about it. Yeah, it is really tough about it, right? There's something really problematic about the fact that the ethic of responsibility doesn't necessarily provide you with that immediate rush and euphoria because it requires thinking rather than being enraptured, right? It requires mm. recognizing contingency. It requires being concerned about the use of violence and how what the consequences of your actions might be, right? Uh, and that's not to sort of um, encourage like milquetoast liberal quietude, 
right? Or anything like that. Because that itself is can often be a kind of violence. To not do anything in the in the face of violence is itself like to allow it, right? It's a kind of violence. Um, but it does require thinking and critical thinking um, and strategy, and sometimes giving up on or not engaging in a thing um, that would provide a certain amount of you know euphoria or enrapturing or whatever it is. Um, that's wow. tough. Yeah. Again, but that's that, really that, tough. The, the, the point there is that when that happens, the reason that that's happening when someone's like con- deep seated conviction is sort of deflated, right? In a particular social or political context, they, they'll experience a kind of alienation from that. That's the problem we're talking about, right? Is that responsibility sometimes results in alienation because you can't act on the principles or convictions that you have. That speaks to the illegitimate social order and in fact gives you more reason to change that order, right? Because it's not allowing people to act on true good convictions that they have. So if anything, it's not yeah. encouraging quietude. It's encouraging radical change. Just not always going to be like... It's just transvaluation of values, right? Like that's that's kind of what it ends up advocating, which isn't satisfying, I think, to people who want strategic... want want, want something that they can hook themselves into as a base for a strategic political program. And it's not satisfying. And I And I'm fully aware of that. And I don't know what to do with that. And maybe this is where there is a sort of like political pessimism that kind of enters the fray. And maybe this is why I am drawn to some of the work of like Afro-pessimism where you're just kind of like, yeah, yeah, like what you need is the destruction of the world. (laughs) You know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I guess I guess I'm just just still left with the notion that like if if that's occurring, if that kind of um, political or almost spiritual disappointment is happening, right? The problem isn't you, right? You're right to experience disappointment. You're right to be a, to grieve, have grief about that loss. Like you should be able to act on deep-seated, true and good conviction about what's real and true and good. Um, and if you can't, if you're left with that, that ethical responsibility actually sort of deflating um, what you're spiritually committed to, then the problem is the social order. So that provides more motivation to change it, right? You should yeah. you should never be left with the ethical responsibility, I would think, guiding you towards inaction, right? Maybe in like the worst of all possible worlds, like the aliens have come down and they have advanced technology and they're going to exterminate us, eat our brains. Okay, yeah, maybe then. <laughs> um, but, you know, in most circumstances, I would think that there's, a, there's still a glimmer of hope in the fact that if that ethical responsibility is is acting as a safeguard, then that, that at the very least opens up some opportunities to think about, well, okay, how can we create a world where this doesn't happen? What would the kind of mm. social order look like that doesn't have this kind of result? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, um, yeah, and I think just, just to reiterate it again, I just think that what this does is this leaves a lot of people very dissatisfied because it doesn't give you something that you can easily sort of like hook yourself into, you know? Yeah. But is that, is that hooking yourself into, I think has that, the language of like, again, that, that, that formal kind of consumerism where it's like, I want to find a political ideology that suffuses me with euphoric enraptured meaningfulness or whatever. And that's just, 
I guess that's that's sexy in the moment, but I don't mm. know that that's that's providing like a real life of meaning. I agree. Yeah, and this is one of the difficult things that I often have with with political discourse is that I feel like it sort of is built to prevent a, a, a pursuit of the life of meaning in any sort of enriched way because there's so much that's like vying for our attention or that's battling for our attention and there really are really shitty people on the rise and so it's really easy to just be like, well, we must match power for power. And that's where the seduction kind of, I think, comes in. To to just simply relax into sort of like hooking into a politics of conviction or an ethics of conviction, I mean, or an ethics of like the means end, you know? Because it feels like, well, one, that gives us a place, it gives us a community because those are kind of like the dominant modes of response, but also it feels like it gives us some sort of power to be able to actually engage and to really ward off some horrible shit. So the question is, is can you do that while also undermining it and not like fully buying into the the kind of narrow dogmatism of conviction or the narrow dogmatism of, you know, the ends justifying the means? Yeah, that seems to be, I mean, our own current predicament, right, is that people have very rational yeah. reasons for following the ethic of conviction or the ethic of ultimate ends. It's usually because the status quo is only offering those as as escape routes, right? Um, so we shouldn't we shouldn't think people are being like. So when we talk about like the the rapturous meaning of of like you know the pursuit of uh, of communism or, or nationalism or whatever. I, I don't mean to insinuate that it's like a purely emotional, irrational kind of pursuit, right? It's very rational to pursue a life of meaning. <laughs> And being enraptured sometimes is like a is usually a signal for meaningfulness, right? Um, mm. So th- the fact that those are like seem to be the only things on offer um, is part of like the trick of a failing illegitimate order. It's like, hey, th- these these other options are all you know terrible, and then some people are going to see those and be like, well. Not so terrible, actually. <laughs> Provides me some meaning, mm. and right now I ain't getting none of that from the status quo. So it sounds good to me. Yeah, exactly. Which then makes me, the irony here is that is that not just, you know, the opiate of the masses, a heart and a heartless world? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's the ethic of conviction, especially, right? The irony being then that, like, Marxism itself is its own heart and a heartless world. Yeah, I mean, depending how you interpret it. I like to interpret it that way. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, interesting. Well, um, I guess let's go ahead and wrap up the main segment there. Uh, like I said, I'll post the interview link down in the show notes there so that people can uh, can click on that. Um, but uh, yeah, interesting stuff. And, and like I you, you haven't read the book, and I haven't read the book either, but it is definitely on my list. Um, I, uh, I am a fan of her work if for no other reason that it stimulates thought and challenges ideas and and does all the stuff that i think intellectual pursuits should do so good shit yep all right so for our final segment we'll do what we always do and that's the sticky leaves we've talked a lot a lot about meaning and meaningfulness in this episode so it's only appropriate 
that uh, Austin, you tell us what's providing you meaning in a potentially but hopefully not meaningless world. I may have mentioned this at some point, but I don't know if I talk about it often. I'm not a huge novel reader, and it's not because I don't enjoy them. I just don't have the time or take the time to do them. Typically, if I've got time to read, I'm reading something that is nonfiction, or I'm watching something, you know, movies or something like that, or I'm just doing other shit. Um, I do I do love to read a novel sometimes at night, maybe before bed, but again, a lot of times I end up reading nonfiction or something like that, or trying to catch up on the news, or, you know, watching, like, documentaries or something like that. So, um, all that to say, with that, one of my favorite novels that I've ever read came out in 2011. It's called The Gospel of Anarchy by Justin Taylor. Have I ever talked to you about this book? I don't recall. Okay, I'm going to read the back blurb of this novel so you can just get a sense of why it might appeal to me so much. In landlocked Gainesville, Florida, in the hot, fraught summer of 99, 1999, a college dropout named David sleepwalks through his life, a dull haze of office work and internet porn, until a run-in with a lost friend jolts him from his torpor. He's drawn into the vibrant but grimy world of fish gut, a rundown house where a loose collective of anarchists, burnouts, and libertines practice utopia outside society and the law. Some even see their lifestyle as a spiritual calling. They watch for the return of a mysterious hobo who will, they hope, transform their punk oasis into the Bethlehem of a zealous, strange new creed. So that's the kind of... Um, that's the blurb on the back of the novel. I mean, can you see why it would appeal to me? Nothing has sounded more awesome than that. <laughs> <laughs> like, no lie, I want to I wanna buy the... I want to secure the rights to this. I want to option the rights to this and turn this into a film one day. Um... But right, anyway, hold on, hold on a minute, just really quick before you say any more. The name Justin Taylor sounds a lot like Austin Hayden. I mean, I'm already saying it does. Like, what were you doing in 2011? <laughs> Listen, the dude was born in 1982. Has obviously you can tell just by that he has some sort of like similar uh, kind of yearnings and longings and connections and interests. He's an older millennial. I mean, he's like at the tip end of millennial, right? I guess if you start in like 1980. Some people start in 83. Some people start in 82. I have no idea what the cutoff is. He's either, he's just right there. He's one of those like, he's a tweener, you know? He's in between, um, mm -hmm. which is great, which totally fits with me. Um, he's got a new book coming out, his new novel, his second novel. So he has written a couple other things before. He wrote a collection of short stories called like Everything Here is the Best Thing Ever that I really loved. And he's got a memoir that I'm actually in the middle of reading right now. But his new novel is coming out in April. So it's been what, like 13 years since he's written a novel or released a novel. And the novel is called Reboot. And listen to this blurb. David Crater is a has-been. A former child actor from the hit teen drama Rev Beach, he now rotates between his new roles as deadbeat dad, recovering alcoholic, and occasional video game voice actor. But when David is summoned to Los Angeles by Grace, his ex-wife and former co-star, he suddenly sees an opportunity for a reboot. Not just of the show that made him famous, but also of his listless existence. Hollywood, the internet, and a fractured nation have other plans, however, and David soon drinks himself to a realization. 
This seemingly innocuous revival of an old Buffy ripoff could be the spark that sets ablaze a nation <laughs> that sets ablaze a nation gripped by far-right conspiracy, climate catastrophe, and mass violence. Oh man, I can't wait! I cannot wait. Uh, so so we're, we're, we're finally seeing the uh, older, elder geriatric millennials going through their midlife crises, huh? Yep, that's me. <laughs> fucking help i feel like this guy is like the like my voice in so many ways in the world of novels and here's the thing like no one ever talks about him you know like i never hear anybody talking about him and and that just bums me out because i feel like the gospel of anarchy was fucking amazing it got like rave reviews from like everything from like vice to like the paris review and shit like that so like i'm i'm not sure why people at least in my circle don't mention him much i've literally never seen anybody ever mention the gospel of anarchy or justin taylor so where did you and by the way just so people know i have no fucking clue i saw the title of the book and i was like that sounds like something i'd be interested in (laughs) and i got it honestly on a whim on a fucking whim and um yeah like i still i can still picture certain sequences from the novel like like just vividly in my mind so um all this to say i cannot wait for it and maybe if i can just give his profile just a little bit of a boost you know i mean i'm sure any i mean like he needs our thing but i just because i never hear anybody talk about him i'm like fuck i I, want to make sure that he can continue to write stuff because i want to know what he's gonna write you know for when we're in our 40s and when we're in our 50s and when we're in our 60s you know come on man tell me (laughs) show me our world (laughs) the millennial prophet yeah that's it dude that's it and I do promise, I solemnly declare that one day I will option and adapt one of his stories. It will happen. I would love it to be the Gospel of Anarchy. Maybe it'll be Reboot. Maybe it'll be one down the line. One day <laughs> in my life, I will option and produce one of his novels and make a film out of it. Just who, if you did the Gospel of Anarchy, who would be the messianic hobo? Who's your dream? Well, I don't think. I think it's like a waiting. I think it's like a waiting for Godot thing. I don't oh, remember. He, I don't think never, the messianic. Never arrives. Yeah. I don't think so. I don't remember. Yeah, but that's not the point. The point is about like how this 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 kid, this suburbanite, gets sucked into this world to live in this alternative kind of punk rock community and the sexual freedom and the kind of like political anarchism and. Um, a sort of like giving himself it, it's it's his nihilist it's his response to the nihilist times you know and it actually reminds me a lot of um Nietzsche and the Burbs by Lars Eyer a little bit which is probably why I really enjoyed that novel so much which by the way mm. if people are interested you know he was on our podcast and we talked about uh, Nietzsche and the Burbs a bit so it kind of has a similar vibe where it's like retreating into the thing that gives you meaning in your community you know music or alternative community or something like that so good shit but yeah i can't wait for reboot because the cover of it it's got like these um like like pink lipstick cursive outlines it's like it feels very like brett easton ellis but also like um like not with the the kind of misanthropy that you get with brett easton ellis like mm-hmm. there's it's much more of like the meta modern version of a brett easton ellis i think maybe maybe mm-hmm. that's not a fair characterization as somebody who's not steeped in like american literature but maybe something like that 
No, that sounds super interesting. I'm, I'm definitely going to put Gospel of Anarchy on my list. I'm surprised that I've never heard you. I guess I can't remember you ever talking about it because it sounds like a formative thing. I mean, 2011, did you read it back in 2011 or later than that? It was it was either 11 or 12. I remember I was in, um, it was in Scotland when I read it. Okay. So yeah, not, you were still a little bit in your formative period. So oh, I'm 100%. sure it had, yeah, it had an influence, but you were already probably pretty much already like that. So yeah, it was more like, like affirmations, <laughs> you know, <laughs> reassurances. Yeah. <gasps> reassurances. That's what, yeah, it was reassurances. That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> like, cool. I'm on the right track. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, and maybe if we can get reach out to reach out to Justin, that'd be sick. I'd love to get him on to talk about the Gospel of Anarchy and reboot. You know, that'd be sick. Fuck, that, that I'm gonna do that now cool. that I've just said that. I'm <laughs> speaking it into existence. Cool. All right. Well, all right. We'll go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode. Um, as Troy said at the top of the show, uh, please give us some support if you can over at patreon.com slash owls at dawn. We've got a suggestion there to receive topics for a future episode. So please just flood us with ideas. And then what we'll do is we'll take like three or four of them and then we'll do a poll and then everyone can vote on which one will become the episode topic that we address. So patreon.com slash owls at dawn um, check out my class Melbourne School uh, for Continental Philosophy or Melbourne School of Continental Philosophy uh, it's February 12th through 16th but again you can listen to the archive lessons you don't have to be listening at the same time if it's too early for you or too late for you with that time slot doesn't quite work but you can still kind of uh, enjoy the conversation um, and then of course if you can enjoy and you can join live it would be lovely to sort of digitally meet you so Melbourne School of Continental Philosophy it's like MSCP dot whatever it is that you can find it Melbourne School of Continental Philosophy yeah uh, I think we've pretty much covered everything unless there's something I've left out just one more thing I can think of dude what's that das the Danny Americanski. Yeah.